Welcome to the History of the Mongols, episode 24, The Last Emperor. So here we are. After almost 200 years of history, we reach the end. Not the end of Mongol influence in Eurasia, nor the end of the states that emerged from Genghis Khan's conquests. The Golden Horde would last another 100 years. But the end of the Mongol Empire. The fall of the Yuan dynasty in 1368 would leave the weakened Golden Horde as the only surviving Khanate, and therefore this date usually marks the end of the empire that began with Genghis's unification of the steppe tribes. As we'll see, the Mongol royal house in China would actually retreat to govern their old lands in Mongolia, a symbolic moment if ever there was one. The man who oversaw the final disintegration of the Yuan dynasty, the last emperor, was Togon Temur. Togon was the son of Kasala, who you may remember was briefly Great Khan in 1329, before almost certainly being assassinated by his brother Tug. Young Togon Temur had been exiled at the age of ten to an island off the coast of Korea, and from there to Kwangsi province in southern China, where he spent a year receiving tuition from a Buddhist monk. After his uncle Tug's death, Togon was bypassed for the throne in favour of his half-brother, six-year-old Rinshabal. Rinshabal, though died after six months, in December 1332, and there followed a seven-month hiatus, while the two most powerful warlords, El Temur and Bayan, tried to manoeuvre their favoured candidates onto the throne. El Temur and his party backed Tug's heir, the young prince El Tegus, whereas the faction led by the powerful Merkit warlord Bayan pushed for Togon's candidacy. After months of manoeuvring, Bayan's faction succeeded, and Togon Temur was enthroned on the 19th of July 1333 as the 15th Khagan of the Mongol Empire. At first glance, his reign, you might think, was a model of stability. He ruled for almost 40 years, from 1333 to 1370, which was certainly a change after the succession of short-lived rulers who preceded him. But as they say, appearances can be deceptive, and although he remained the great Khan and emperor of the Yuan dynasty, his actual control over the domains in China eroded with every passing year. He is similar in some ways to the Roman Emperor Honorius, who ruled for 28 years in the early 5th century, one of the longest reigns of any Roman Emperor. But during that time, the empire he controlled disintegrated. Now we won't go into detail about the difficulties that faced Togon when he took office. We've covered those in previous episode, particularly cracks in the empire. But to briefly summarise... The last 20 years had seriously eroded the political authority of the dynasty. A succession of short-lived rulers had followed the death of Temur Khan. This resulted in constant shifts in policy, disputes amongst the various powerful factions in the Yuan elite, and a growing distance from the Chinese population. 
as we've seen, a succession of warlords from outside the direct imperial dynasty began to enjoy increasing influence. The political instability, though, was secondary to the economic issues which had beset China. The need to fund a large standing army, a problem since the days of Kublai, had created budget deficits, and the solution of printing additional paper money resulted in inevitable inflation and currency devaluation. The challenge of creating a stable paper currency, so important to international trade, had bedeviled successive Yuan emperors. So the task of pulling things together was by no means an easy one. I mentioned the rising power of the warlords from outside the imperial family, and indeed in the early years of his reign, Togon's administration was dominated by the powerful Merkit warlord Bayan. Bayan had been an important figure in Yuan politics for many years. He had served in administrative posts dating back to Kulug's reign in the 1310s, and had remained a significant figure even when he was not in favour. In 1332, he found himself as kingmaker, opposed to the other powerful warlord of the era, his former ally, the Kipchak el Temur. Bayan supported Togon as his candidate for Great Khan, and was instrumental in placing his nominee on the throne. El Temur died in 1333, and Bayan made sure to consolidate his power by pursuing and executing El Temur's sons in 1335. Bayan is not kindly treated by the sources, who regard him as a reactionary with a cruel streak. We should always take this assessment with a pinch of salt, because the Chinese chronicles are never fans of the Yuan advisers who came from outside the Chinese elite. However, Bayan was certainly a Mongol traditionalist who tried to reduce the Chinese influence in the administration, and this alone would have been enough to get the thumbs down from the chroniclers. Essentially, his idea was to roll back the administration to the days of Kublai, when the empire was at its height, even going so far as to change the title of Togon's reign to that which Kublai had used during his reign, of course, the situation in 1332 was not the same as it had been in 1264 or even 1294. But Bayan was determined that the solution to the many problems facing China was to reset the dynasty. Some parts of his reform package were eminently sensible. Reducing palace expenditures and the overall size of the bureaucracy were both designed to help the financial problems facing the Yuan. He also continued the Yuan policy of providing relief to areas hit by famine or natural disaster. However, this was only one part of his vision. Bayan also wanted to reimpose a version of Kublai's governmental system that marginalised the Chinese in both the military and civilian spheres. Reversing 50 years of change was always going to be difficult, and frankly the dynasty in its current state could ill afford a measure that was guaranteed to alienate the ethnic Chinese. Bayan's measures included 
edicts requesting all Chinese be disarmed and their horses confiscated. He also attempted to reserve key posts in the administration for Mongols or other foreigners. Even more controversial was his decision in 1335 to cancel the imperial examination system. Although this measure was aimed at the Chinese population, it actually affected all major ethnic groups. In 1335, 50% of all positions in the service had actually been allotted for Mongols and other foreigners, so it hit their prospects for promotion, as well as those of the Chinese. To compound the unpopularity of his reforms, Bayan seems to have believed that he could play the role of the conquering warlord and began to gather great personal wealth and to take control of a range of offices that helped centralise power in his own hands. In 1339, Bayan's anti-Chinese sentiments became more extreme and a massacre of officials in Hunan province convinced Bayan that there was a wide-ranging Chinese conspiracy against the Yuan, and he began a purge of Chinese officials from the government. His success, though, was short-lived. As Togon Temur matured, he came to disapprove of Bayan's autocratic rule and sought to assert his own authority. In 1340, the now 20-year-old Togon, allied with Bayan's nephew, Tokto, who was opposed to his uncle, and banished Bayan in a coup. Bayan died later in 1340 while in exile in southern China. Togon also took the opportunity created by Bayan's fall to reorganise the succession. He removed Altegus, who had been appointed crown prince when Togon had come to the throne, and instead appointed his own son with his Korean wife Ji as his heir. Tokto, who now took on the role of Chancellor vacated by Bayan, proved an energetic and innovative minister, and it would certainly be entirely wrong to suggest that the Yuan simply stood by while their dynasty collapsed. Tokto would be a key figure in government between 1340 and 1355, during which time he held office twice. He was a younger man than Bayan, of the same generation as Togon, and far more willing to adapt to the realities of the situation. Togto quickly reversed the most unpopular of Bayan's changes, cancelling the purges, opening up senior roles to the ethnic Chinese, and restoring the civil service exams. The essence of both his periods in government was trying to strengthen the central administration. His first ministry lasted until 1344, when Togon dismissed his chief minister after a series of rebellions broke out. He returned to power five years later, and still tried his best to save the disintegrating dynasty. He issued a new paper currency in 1350, but as we've seen many times, Paper money that was not backed by silver quickly lost its value, and by 1356, paper currency had become so worthless it largely passed out of circulation altogether. Togto, though, was able to use the notes 
to pay for the last major engineering project of the Yuan era. In the 1330s and 1340s, the Yellow River, the great artery that ran through China, flooded regularly and catastrophically. It goes without saying that this was a huge problem. The floods devastated the fertile agricultural land that fed so much of central China. More than this, the Yellow River was an important link in the transport network that fed goods across China and ultimately on to Central Asia and beyond. Kublai Khan had made control of the Yellow River one of his first priorities, recognising its importance to controlling China. Togto attempted to solve the issue of flooding permanently by rechanneling the river along its lower course so that it would again flow into the sea south of Shandong. In May 1351, 170,000 troops and labourers began work on the project, which was completed and inaugurated barely six months later, in December of the same year. In the five years that Togto was out of office, an administration led by Burke Buya attempted a more devolved approach to dealing with Chinese problems. Burke, a provincial official by background, sent out 12 investigation teams across the country to correct abuses and attempt to engage local people in tackling the disturbances and natural disasters that were an increasing problem during the 1340s. None of these approaches, although they were all well-intentioned, was able to stem the tide of problems. One of the things that differentiates the fall of the Yuan from the problems encountered in the other Khanates is that the Yuan faced increasing civil unrest that eventually coalesced into a rebellion that forced them out of China completely. Why the Yuan dynasty collapsed is a genuinely difficult question to answer. This is one of those times where the macro and the micro come together to create the circumstances for widespread rebellion. We've talked a lot about the big picture factors, plagues, famine, and the inevitable agricultural and economic decline that was a consequence of this, afflicted China as much as it affected Europe and the Middle East. What is much less clear is how these factors played out at a local level. What provoked rebellion and resistance? Was it opposition to the foreign Yuan regime? A response to the economic hardship? Or just opportunistic local commanders and brigands trying to generate power and wealth amongst the chaos? Sadly, there is a dearth of information about the true situation on the ground, so we don't really know exactly how and why the trouble spread, although it's very clear that it was concentrated in the south initially, the lands that had been the heartland of the Song dynasty. In the 1330s, the first of three major epidemics documented during Togon's reign struck Yunnan province. We don't know definitively whether this was plague, although this is the most likely explanation. The second great epidemic in the mid-1340s was associated with a period when the Yellow River flooded catastrophically. In fact, the weather throughout the 14th century was unusually bad, 
with 36 years having unusually severe winters. The result was a succession of famines that are reported in almost every year of Togon's reign. And as the population experienced hardships, governmental control was starting to break down, creating conditions that were ideal for rebellion. Now if you read the histories, you'll often get the impression that the Yuan were brought down by the Red Turban Rebellion, with the future Ming Emperor Hong Wu playing a leading role. This though doesn't really capture the overall breakdown of order across China. The Red Turbans were just one of the groups who took advantage of the situation to fight against the Yuan. And of course they were the most successful. Rebellions had occurred at various times dating back to the later period of Kublai's reign, but by the 1340s they had become an epidemic. Chancellor Togto managed to pull together a force to defend territory during his second ministry. This was cobbled together from the Mongol forces still loyal to the Yuan, supplemented by local militias. And as late as 1352, he led a successful expedition against rebels in the northern province of Jiangsu. But it was simply not enough. Commanders across the country often abandoned their loyalty to the central administration and in effect became independent warlords. Rebel armies and bandits also operated in many areas. And if that wasn't enough, pirates disrupted the crucial maritime grain supplies to the north. These had already begun to decline from a peak of 3.34 million bushels in 1329 to 2.6 million in 1342. But from 1348, they were at the mercy of pirates, whom the authorities could not defeat. Togto actually explored a radical solution to this particular problem, and brought several thousand rice farmers from the south to develop rice farms in the north, which had no tradition of cultivation. At least three of these experiments were attempted, including one as far north as Manchuria, but Togto was dismissed before they could take root. He was actually removed from office while he was in the process of commanding another major military operation against one of the rebel armies along the Yellow River. Accounts suggest that Togon's decision to remove his chancellor was a particular misjudgment, as Togto actually had the upper hand and was besieging the rebel army when news of his dismissal occurred. It's doubtful whether he could have made any real difference in the fate of the Yuan, but it is true that once Togto was forced out of power in 1355, things went downhill rapidly. One figure curiously absent from the events engulfing the Yuan is the Emperor Togon himself. By 1355 he would have been 34 or 35 years old, a mature man, but there is barely a mention of his involvement in the fall of the dynasty. Most sources suggest that he withdrew into a state of virtual retirement, surrounded by dancers and musicians. Rather than concentrate on the business of state, he involved himself in vanity projects, like commissioning the construction of a huge pleasure boat of his own design, and designing an elaborate type of water clock. 
A more charitable reading might suggest that he appointed competent ministers like Togto and gave them the leeway to follow their policies. But the utterly limp response of the Yuan to the growing rebellions after Togto's dismissal suggests that the first explanation is nearer the truth. It says something that Togon remains a peripheral figure to the collapse of the dynasty he actually ruled. So the uprising against the Yuan was not initially an organised movement. But from this chaos, one group in particular emerged as the opposition to Yuan rule in China, the Red Turbans. Before we talk a little bit about their role in the downfall of the Yuan, we should first clear up the name. Here at least there is very little mystery. The supporters of the Red Turbans wore red handkerchiefs around their heads, or carried red banners as a sign of their support for the movement. Exactly what the Red Turbans believed is harder to pin down. The movement is tied quite closely to a radical religious and political movement known as the White Lotus. This apparently first appeared during the Yuan period and mixed elements of Buddhist philosophy with the old Persian religion Manichaeism. Perhaps more important than the religious elements of the society, it encouraged practices like the free association of men and women that were frowned upon, and it conducted its ceremonies largely in secret. As a result, it was outlawed by the Yuan, but the prescribed secret meetings formed an ideal focal point for rebellion in the 1340s and 1350s. Many of the early Red Turban leaders were followers of the White Lotus Society, but the exact relationship between the two is not clear to this day. Subsequent dynasties, though, clearly saw the White Lotus as a subversive threat, because it remained banned until the 20th century. The Red Turbans probably originated in the 1330s, but it really took shape as a movement in the early 1350s, particularly in Guangzhou, when a Buddhist monk, Zhu Yuanzang, took on the idea of rebellion and quickly gathered significant support across the region. Within a few years, the Red Turbans were a national force, already taking territory from the beleaguered Yuan. One of the key supporters of the movement was the man who would ultimately succeed Togon as the ruler of China. He would be known as the Hongwu Emperor, founder of the Ming Dynasty, and a hugely important figure in Chinese history. But in the early 1350s, he was simply Zhu. The future emperor was born in 1328 as Zhu Chongba to a desperately poor peasant family north of Nanjing in the plain of the Hui River. This land, although fertile, was prone to flooding, and when he was 16, the Hui and Yellow Rivers flooded disastrously. This led to a series of epidemics, probably plague, which killed Zhu's parents and left him a penniless orphan. To survive, he became a monk at the local Huangjui Temple, not an uncommon choice for impoverished young men like Zhu. However, this did not last, as he was forced to leave due to the monastery's lack of funds. 
and spent the next few years as little more than a common beggar, eking out a living. In all, he spent three years travelling in this way, before he was able to return to the relative safety and security of the monastery. Under the tutelage of the monks, he learnt to read and write, and he remained there until he was twenty-four years old. It was the destruction of his monastery by Yuan force that encouraged Zhu to take up armed opposition to the ruling dynasty. He rose rapidly in a local rebel army led by Guo Xing until he was effective second in command. Eventually, he took the decision to attach his force to the rapidly expanding Red Turban movement. In 1356, Zhu commanded the force that captured the key city of Nanjing, which became his personal base and would be the capital of his new dynasty. It is a mark of how much central authority had collapsed that the Yuan were unwilling, or more likely unable, to make any attempt to turn back the rebel armies. By 1358, most of south and central China had fallen to the rebels without a major battle, or even much resistance. Amazingly, the key battle in Hongwu's rise to power was not a cataclysmic conflict against the Yuan, but instead a fight with another faction within the Red Turbans. Zhu's faction, now known as the Ming, squared off against the larger armies of another leader, Chen Yulang. This conflict lasted almost three years before Zhu's Ming navy was able to rout Chen's larger fleet in a key battle on the vast inland Lake Poyang. Now in control of most of southern China, Zhu was unstoppable. In 1367, he won control of the Yangtze Delta and the land either side of the Great River, giving his forces control over the most important artery of communication in China. The other former Mongol generals and rebel warlords realised the inevitable and often switched their allegiance to the new rising power. And on the 20th of January, 1368, Zhu felt himself confident enough to be proclaimed emperor of the new Ming dynasty in Nanjing, and adopted the name Hongwu. Later in 1368, the armies of the new Ming emperor headed north into the territory still under Yuan control. Togon Khan chose not to fight, something that would no doubt have disgusted his most famous ancestor, Genghis. Instead, the remnants of the Yuan administration, including the great Khan himself, abandoned Khan Balik, the capital Kublai had built, in September 1368, and simply retreated to Mongolia. Without a fight, the Yuan dynasty, and with it the Mongol Empire, was finished. Togon himself continued to rule until May 1370, when he died aged 49 or 50. He was the 15th and last Khagan of the Mongol Empire, and the 11th and final emperor of the Yuan dynasty. His successors would still continue to claim their authority over China, but there was no hope of a return for the Yuan. By 1382, 
Ming forces had completed the final conquest of all lands under Yuan control, and their new dynasty was secure. They would rule until 1644. So what was the legacy of the dynasty founded by Kublai? It's fair to say that the Yuan period, sandwiched between two of China's most famous and culturally rich dynasties, the Song and the Ming, tends to get rather short shrift. This is extremely unfair. In 100 years of rule, the Yuan left an important mark on China that marked a transition from the medieval to the early modern period. One of the key elements was the unification of China. Kublai, as I mentioned, was the first foreigner to rule all China, but the unification of the country under one administration outlived the end of the dynasty. The Ming and Qing dynasties that succeeded the Yuan ruled over a unified state well into the modern age. Of course, there were rebellions, loss of territories during this long period, but the days of competing dynasties in North and South were gone. Allied to this, the Yuan period created new centres of power in China. Kanbalik, Kublai's new capital, formed the basis for modern Beijing. The port cities of Fudan and Guangzhou took on new importance as international trading posts during his reign. Secondly, the Yuan period helped internationalise China. We've already talked about the role that the Yuan played in encouraging international trade. Chinese goods found new markets in Russia, the Middle East and Europe. And as well as goods, Marco Polo's account of his travels in China helped popularise the idea of the Orient in Europe and to inspire future travellers to try and gain access to the riches he described. Ironically, in the immediate aftermath of the Yuan's fall, the new Ming Emperor Hongwu chose to break with their policies of international trade. He wanted a return to traditional Confucian principles and government by the Han Chinese. <clears throat> so, international trade led by foreign merchants was suddenly discouraged. Other than a famous series of voyages led by the explorer Zheng Hui, China took a more inward-looking approach. This, though, did not discourage Europeans from searching for a sea route to the Orient. The most immediate result of these voyages was, of course, the European discovery of the Americas, but by the mid-16th century, Portugal had established a Chinese trading base in Macau, and a flood of Chinese goods began to enter Europe. We also talked about Yuan imperialism in Southeast Asia, in largely negative terms. The costly military expeditions in Vietnam and Burma did not lead to conquest, and they certainly drained the resources available to Kublai and his successors. However, as many of these areas chose to become vassals of the Yuan, they did serve to open up new markets for Chinese goods. Pottery, always an immensely popular export, is a good illustration of this. Vietnam, Indonesia and other states in the region all imported Chinese ceramics during the Yuan period and each developed their own unique relationship to these goods. Vietnam, for example, developed their own domestic production, mirroring Chinese styles. 
harder to fully estimate, but probably more significant, were the demographic changes that occurred during the century of Yuan rule. As outsiders, they tended to encourage other ethnic groups or religions that had previously been marginal in China. There was a significant influx of Muslims to northern China, particularly to Yunnan province. Buddhism also flourished under the patronage of Kublai and his successors, and even Christianity began to find a firm foothold in China. Envoys from the papacy travelled to the Mongol capital Kanbalik, and a number of pilgrims made the journey from China to the west. By the early 14th century, this interchange had grown to such a point that the Italian John of Monte Corvino was appointed Archbishop of Peking in 1308, with other Franciscans taking on a similar role in Zaiton. The Mongols in general supported successive popes in building a network of Catholic churches across their empire, including in Yuan, China. And after the death of John of Monte Corvino in 1328, Togon actually issued envoys to the Pope in 1336 requesting a new spiritual guide, and the Pope obliged, sending a mission back to China in 1338 that remained at the Yuan court for several years. So China in 1368 was a very different place from the divided country it had been in 1206, when Genghis Khan had first begun the conquest of the western Xia. We should not forget that those initial conquests had had devastating consequences for the population of northern China, and I don't want to give the impression that the arrival of the Mongols was an entirely positive experience for the region, but I hope over the last twenty-odd episodes I've shown that it was not a disaster either. It's safe to say that early modern China which was for perhaps 200 years the preeminent world economic power, would not have developed as it did without the influence of the Yuan. With the retreat of the Yuan Emperor to Mongolia, the once great Mongol Empire was reduced to an uncertain hold over the lands of the Golden Horde and the territory of their homeland in Mongolia itself. Mongol power itself was not dead, and various Mongol tribal leaders, including direct descendants of Genghis, would rule at various times in Central Asia over the next 300 or so years. But the imperial project undertaken by Genghis definitively died in 1368. He had wanted to create a universal empire, with all the known world under the rule of a great Khan. Many rulers have dreamed the same dream, but none have come closer to success than Genghis and the Mongols. In 1278, his descendants did rule over the vast majority of Eurasia. If we take into account vassal states, the only areas not under Mongol control were Western Europe, the western parts of the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent, and Japan. And all of these areas felt the fear of Mongol invasion at times in the 13th century. So while the project failed, it left an indelible mark on huge areas of Eurasia that helped shape the modern world. Next week, before we leave the Mongol Empire behind, we'll look at the legacy of the Mongol invasion started by Genghis and assess their place in history 
So join me one last time as we say goodbye to the largest land empire in history. Mm -hmm.